0: welcome to Pracky Symposium 2. My name's Liam D Elysiums and I'm the co-founder of Pracky. So basically what's going to be happening today is that for the first half, the panelists in front of you have started their own the elected their own specialist areas to talk to you in relation to teaching and education generally as well. In the second half, what we're gonna be able to do is open it up to you as an audience, and we're going to be able to do this in two ways. First of all, we'll do it the old fashioned way of actually just raising your hand and asking a question. The second way is to actually send through questions to me anonymously, okay? So before we go too much into it, I'll put that password back up on the screen in just a second, I'd just like to introduce who you're actually going to be listening to during this time, okay? So my name's Liam Elysiums, I'm the co-founder of Pracky. Now I started Pracky because I'm a fourth-year student in the Bachelor of Education at the moment at the Queensland University of Technology, and every time I went out on prac, I went back to my lecture hall and my my cohort had literally halved about each time. It even got to a stage where fellow prac students of mine were dropping out during prac. I would go the next day and oh where's John? Oh he dropped out, and it unfortunately it became a very familiar story. What also became unfortunately a very familiar story is every time I'd go to one of my mentors, they would say, oh, you know all that stuff you learnt at uni? Uh, chuck that all the This is the real deal. This is the real world. This is what you have to actually learn on the job. And it kind of felt like we were being pushed into the deep end in kind of a way. You, know, you learn about some stuff out in, in university, then suddenly you're in front of a class full of 13-year-old boys or girls and they're looking to you as leaders. And I thought, why does it have to be like that? Why do we have to be chucked in the deep end, so to speak, on prac? Why can't we actually get that practical, real-world advice that we learn on prac in the classroom? And that's what Pracky came to be. Getting the best teachers I know, the best academics I know to actually come in and talk to students and stop this chucking in of a deep end and actually listen to real-world teachers, no holds barred, censorship free, okay? And that's what we're going to be giving to you today. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're literally coming to you and saying, this is the real deal. This is the type of things you need to know when you're out in the profession. Rather than leaving it to you to make those sometimes fatal mistakes out on prac and leaving so many people out of the profession. Okay. So first of all, uh, to my left here is Mr. Louis Bradfield. Louis is the founder and principal of Maradati Early Childhood Community Centers in Toowoomba. Maradati was originally a community kindergarten established in 1976 that transitioned to an independent school in 2006. Maradati, I had to, I did have to Google how to pronounce that Louis. I'm sorry. It's Swahili word meaning to embellish or to enhance. The name was chosen to reflect an ethos that positions children at the center of all decision making. Maradati's Toomba site has enrollments of 85 children from kindergarten through to year six, and Maradati is currently working with communities in Brisbane and Ipswich to add the Maradati approach to the educational landscapes. For over 35 years, Louis's work has been driven by his focus on advocating for children and their need to drive social change. His specific area of interest lies in the effective domain with his concerns about the current state of children's well-being. So first off, we have Mr. Louis Bradfield, the principal and founder of Maradati, talking to us about teachers being learners instead of just teachers. Okay. So first
1: of all, I did want to thank Liam for the opportunity. Um, I did ask him, send him an email, and um, I guess question whether I was the right person for this. I'm not really, um, I think that our education system really needs a a big overhaul. I think there is much work to be done. So getting platforms like this to ask the question, um, I I think is, you know, I'm pleased and I'm grateful. So thank you, Liam. Um, Before I start, too, I I have a bit of a, a history of be a little blunt, occasionally swear, and a bit pointed. So I guess what I want to do is to make sure that my intention isn't to offend anybody in the audience. Um, my, I guess my work is about two things that I work on. And The first one is about advocating for children, so speaking on their behalf, because my greatest concern is children have no voice at all. That most spaces designed for children are just dominated by adults and what's right for them. And, and I think it's important to stress, too, my background is early childhood, so a lot of my work over my 35-year career, you know, early childhood trained. Um, I've worked in preschools, kindergartens. You know, um, I currently teach in a class which I'll talk about. I work with, with year threes currently. And next term, I'm working with some, some prep aid students. So I guess that's who I'm speaking for. My concern is that they have no voice. And people are not really listening. Um, And research and stats show that children are really under a lot of pressure. You know, we're talking about high levels of anxiety, of of depression really, in really quite young children. I mean, the stats too then translate to adolescents where one in four of adolescent students will actually develop some sort of mental uh, disorder or a problem. So I guess that's who I'm speaking for. And the second thing that I'm speaking about is or, or to drive social change, and it's about two things. One is, I think, that many have forgotten what childhood or what children look like. It's like they've just lost in the landscape. So, um, And I think to drive social change, we need to consider you know, and, and make decisions based on what life looks like for children currently. Um, and I'm not trying to say there's something wrong with the way their life looks, but life looks different than it did hundred years ago when a lot of these systems were locked in for education. Parents are currently under more pressure than I've ever seen in my 35 years and I think children are wearing that. And I do think parents are really, I think their best intention is there, I think they want what is best for their, their children, but I think that, I, I think as a society, I think we could do more to support parents within that domain of parenting because a lot of parents have come looking and currently we have a lot of parents looking for something different. So they're clear they don't want what is on offer, but at the same time they're not sure about what they do want. So you'll see that one of my interests is that, you, is that still we use shame, you know, even as a, a dominant way to keep children in their place, both as parents and as within education systems. Um, and I think parents, are, are themselves, based on their own experience, so badly want to do it differently but are not really sure how. And within that domain, too, I think it's important to note that, you know, the latest brain research, there's a lot of research to support. There are much better ways of doing what we currently do. So, at Maradadi we, we, we work in teams, we teach in teams, we don't put just one single adult in a space, we have high adult child ratios, you know, two adults to 12 to 15 children at the most. Um, and often, if children have more needs, then that will put more adults in the space to support that. So, I, I need to acknowledge those people who work with me. I'm not going to go um, into a, a, a lot of this, but um, it looks briefly at, at, at the key themes that Maradadi and Liam introduced some of those uh, the background and how long I've been doing it, and how I basically left the system in disgust. Really, it's some of the simple things like how we speak to children and how we think that that's okay. I retreated to a community kindergarten in Toowoomba, uh, started a design business, was going to do all anything but teach, but somehow I've been sort of roped back in. And look, I do love what I do. Uh, I feel very fortunate to do what I do. Um, the, the thing that I guess too within my work is that I think within the domain of innovation which is what we're playing with. I don't think that um, within that education realm, I don't think we do that very well at all. You know, I think a lot of the research is almost as as someone, a a colleague said to me, it's like we we do research on killer whales in captivity. So a lot of the research on children actually happens within schools where, and that dominant sort of paradigm is really so strong and it's been such a tradition that it's really hard to bust out of that in research, so shows that. But there's a few themes that I've listed there in terms of the work that I do. And one of them that, that Liam mentioned is this idea of well-being. And one of my biggest frustrations is that, yes, research is, is so on our side about this, but we have more conversations about organic food and whole foods and how do we get an egg to taste better and a chicken to taste better than we actually do about how do we prioritise children's well-being. And I think that that's a conversation we need to be having because even if you look at you know, the way that we start formal education, we we you know we start it far too young. Leading international nations don't start formal education until children are seven, and and I think that's one of the things we're seeing these climates where children are sat down at desks, you know, and instructed at an early age from an early age. By the way, guys, I'm not saying there are not people out there that are doing amazing things. By the way, I'm talking, I am making some generalizations and assumptions, so I'm not saying that there are not some amazing people out there. But my request today is to, I hope that, you know, we can find more people to start playing in that domain. Um, but but again, the request at Maradati for anyone who enters is to actually become involved in that making and playing with and, and creating and looking for new ways of doing things. And we think we need three three people or three groups of people to do that. We think children need to be part of that. You know, we, we need adults, so both parents and teachers. And I think that's a point of difference about Maradati We're actually not interested in parents coming to drop their child over the fence and for us to fix that child. And I think that's one of the problems we have. It's like education systems or educators have set themselves up as as the experts. And I guess that I think something's lost in that. I think parents default and hand over that responsibility when I think they need to be walking with us. And I'm not talking about judging them on where they're at, but I'm talking about involving them as part of this Exploring perhaps we could do this differently and how could we do that? Because, again, as I said before, my concern not only is the pressure we place on parents, but a lot of people are also doing a lot of blaming and shaming of parents. And I think we, you know, I think they're just struggling as well. And I think they need support and they need help to consider how they might do it differently. So, when Liam sent me, and again, I questioned whether I was the right person for the gig. I guess I'm interested in, because I mean, those people that survived this system, whether it be uni, or within the first couple of years run away from teaching. I'm interested in those that run away. And I guess my request is, look, there's, there's teachers out there in that construct of teachers and we seem to be able to hand on that tradition of a teaching or to be a teacher quite well. I'm looking for those people that are leaving. I'm interested in them. I'm interested in why are they leaving. I'm interested in what they're seeing. And I, you know, I hear those stories, students come to us for crack. Some refuse to go other places because they feel that what's important to them is actually not embraced in in, in schools, inverted commas. So I guess that's why I decided to come along. I'm I'm interested in speaking to those people who are leaving and why are they leaving. Yes, if the gig is not for you, fine, I I admire you for moving on and finding the right gig. But for those and the stories that I hear that they are concerned about the work that is happening in some of these schools. That the work that they hear from universities is actually not being played out, which I think Liam touched on a bit as well. There's this huge divide between research and action, if you like. And and I'm I'm, I'm interested in that as much as Liam is. And so I I want to speak to those people who, and I want to implore more people who do not like what they see. I want them to stay. I want them to almost get inside to white act. To actually be part of the resistance, to start to challenge, to question, to actually fight back and ask the questions. Yes, you need to play your game, unfortunately. If you want a prac report, unfortunately you need to play the game for whoever is your prac supervisor. I get that. You need to get through your first year, you need to get through your second year. But don't lose yourself in that experience. Work out what it is about this that doesn't feel right for you. Work out, you know, think about those things that you would like to play with and to do differently. And and to store those away, to actually look for a way of keeping yourself sane, you know, amongst, you know, what I think is really, I don't think it is sustainable currently for children or for for, for the teachers in the space. I think that, you know, I'm speaking and I'm hoping that more of these people actually stay. And I guess my biggest concern, which is what that is about, is that we're asking children to almost leave their humanness at the gate. We're, you know, we're actually asking them to sit in these spaces that in no way reflect what or who they are or what children should be doing at the age of five. And again, I'm talking about entry into prep school, where, which was the protagonist for Maradati to actually start. So in 2006, parents were quite concerned then about how about the shift from preschool into that prep age When we were told it was to be play-based, and look, my experience and what I see and what I hear, there is not, people have even forgotten what play looks like. You know, we're talking about a workbook and a worksheet culture that in no way needs to involve a teacher. I think it's disgusting, quite frankly. And I think that we sit five-year-olds and endure and sit them down, and we think that's okay. I actually have questions about that. So, you know, that's humanness. And my concern is we're actually asking teachers to be in these spaces to almost dismiss their own humanness, and I'm talking about all of those things that are important to us as humans—feelings. You know, what are we feeling, and what are we needing? And I think that's something that we need to consider. Three things that I think you could perhaps consider, and I think we ask those things of every—those uh, three things of everybody who enters into the Maridati space. So, we're asking after a commitment, and I think we need that in terms of action. We need parents to come into the space, to be involved, whether it be on the governing council, to spend time in the space to see and understand what their child's experiencing, what's happening for them, how they're thinking, how they work, how they learn, how they play. You know, we're asking them to then, um, you know, to show or to contribute. So to think about how they can add to that community that is Maradati. And the other thing, which is the third one there, is communicate. And I think that most adults suck at this badly. We're asking children to actually identify what they're feeling and and to actually consider what it is that they're needing. Well, we need adults to actually up the game with that as well because I think it it could serve us all well. So they're the three things that I think as you navigate your way through this, potentially you could consider. I'm interested in this because the construct, construct that worries me is that this whole construct of what a teacher looks like. It's like this tradition, and I think it's outdated, and I think it's, it's time we moved on from that. And what I'm interested in is that construct of teachers as learners, because at Maradati I guess that's what we play with too. We play, and we get children to actually play with that tension between freedom and discipline every day. And we know that every child fits in a different place along that continuum. And how will they ever know unless they actually play with it? And one of the other key themes we play with is choice and freedom and these children make decisions every day about how they want their day to look. So it's that culture of learning that I think is important. And before I finish, again, my concern is that schools are nothing but conditioning ponds where we reward compliance and pliability. And I'm not sure, again, that serves anybody very well at all. I mean, that's the history of schools and it's in that governance domain. But I think it's time we moved on from that. And again, I'm not saying all schools look like that, but my experience is that the current regimes, you know, the dominance of NAPLAN, you know, the, the dominance of you know, the workbook culture, this worksheet, this whole idea, you know, we, we, this, a carrot, mind you, I think I got excited about what they were considering. Mind you, I just read a polit- politician actually looked like they've shut that down again, you know, that right wing conservative element. So I think it's time to question what schools do look like. I think what children are needing is a connection, and I think that's what the latest brain research is showing us. And finally, you know, within that domain of well-being, I'm still interested that universities, that schools use the word behavior management, that somehow children need to be managed, is a great concern to me. It's such an old construct, and again, the concern that I mentioned before is that shame is a big part of that. And people say, oh. Yes, we're not talking about adults here. We know that shame and guilt potentially serves us all well if we use reflection and personal reflection to think about how we might do things better. But when we're looking at the stress that young children are under, we're looking at a culture or a climate where these children, it doesn't matter what adults tell them about who they are or what they look like or how good they are. The reality is with shame is a child and most children these days under the pressure they're under are actually making meaning about how they look as a learner what they think not what you think so what's going on in their head they learn to believe that about themselves at an early age and that's concerning when you look at the stats so i want you to have a think about it so i guess my request is you know to get in there to hang in there long enough if you don't like what you see then we need you to think to hold on long enough to get through teachers college to find a space to start to play with to innovate, to play with, to take a risk, and consider what do you need as a learner?
0: Thank you, Louis. Fantastic words, and I have to echo that, that I feel my generation coming through are probably seeing the biggest shift in education. I was teaching um, on my last pack, funnily enough, the Industrial Revolution, and Some of the students were looking at children's rights in the Industrial Revolution and actually said, well, before the Industrial Revolution, childhood didn't even exist. School came to being an Industrial Revolution. In fact, a lot of the things we see in schools are from the Industrial Revolutions because that's what schools are made for, to create workers, uniforms, the bell, all those type of things. Now we see independent schools like yours, Louis, changing that and seeing a big educational reform. And I think in the next five to 10 years, um, teachers coming through now are in that awkward transitionary period between the back and looking towards the future. Now next we have Mr. Scott Harding. Scott is what I like to call a true all-rounder. He has 21 years experience working in public, private, independent schools in UK and in Australia. Scott emigrated from the UK to be an eventual second in charge position in the English department at Brisbane Boys College. And from there, he has been a driving force of a young school, Springfield Anglican College, shaping their English department. Scott's also the co founder of Pracky, as he believes strongly in sending the elevator back down, so to speak, to support early career teachers. And Scott teaches French and English, at BBC and TSAC, and is an expert in pastoral education. And Scott, you were talking about uh, what you elected to talk about was the actual nuts and bolts of behaviour management, funnily enough,
1: ironically <laughs> enough.
2: I you'd like that. <laughs> if you, I'm not a performer like Louis, so I'm going to sit here, if that's all right with you. Um, look, I think the most important thing I would stress to start with is to run your classroom properly. It's not so much behaviour management, but it's about preparation. So preparation is the key. So you've got your job you're setting up your classroom, you're about to walk in there, three or four days before you go in there, all right. you should be thinking about your approach, your mental approach to teaching, okay? Because I guarantee you, five, six, seven weeks into your first term, you're gonna be very, very tired. Very, very tired indeed, all right? Your internship is one thing, but actually learning to teach in your first year is completely another thing. It's like your driving test and then actually driving, okay? It's very, very different. You're gonna have challenges that are thrown at you in real time. And it's that ability to read the classroom that develops in your first three, four, five years of teaching. I think most of the panel here would agree. You're in your second year, of course. You'll understand that. Um, So to start with, I suppose, I'm gonna come back to something Louis said, which is voice. Finding your voice as a teacher and your style. Now, you may have different experiences on your internship. You may have um, mentors that are very encouraging of you to develop your own style. You may have mentors who say, copy me. You may have mentors who you know, don't give you that kind of sense of control. What you have to realize is that the internship was an opportunity for you to look at what works for you and what doesn't work for you as a practitioner. Okay, so I can tell you now, in my experience of 21 years, shouting is counterproductive. I think Louis would agree with me here. It's the worst form of communication you could possibly find with any child. Okay? none of us respond to being shouted out, I would imagine, all right? It's the kind of thing that you really don't want to be considering. But in week seven, week eight, when you're tired, it can be a default setting. You've got to be very, very careful with your energy levels. All right? So one thing that we don't really look at is our own self-worth as teachers, our own well-being. You've got to be getting your sleep. You've got to be making sure that you're eating properly. You've got to make sure you have something outside the classroom that is a release, a safety valve. You have to have that and it's really easy in your first term to sacrifice everything in order to make sure your lessons are are very well planned and and very well, guess what, man plans and God laughs, all right? I guarantee you something will happen in that classroom that you haven't prepared for. So coming back to what I was saying, your voice. You walk into that classroom three or four days before you're thinking about your approach. The first thing I would suggest you do as a teacher is listen, not speak, listen. We're always very up for ensuring instructions in classrooms. Here are my rules. This is what i expect. You need to listen, all right? So when you're in that first lesson, you're introducing yourself, all right? You're watching the responses, and when the responses are coming back to you, you're listening to what is being said, and you're reading that classroom in real time. Who are gonna be the troublemakers, you know? What are you gonna do with those people? Are you gonna move them together? Are you gonna move them separately? Are you going to configure your classroom in a freestyle? where you allow them to choose where they sit? which is really what we'd all like to do. Are you gonna move certain people away from each other? These are things that will become apparent in the first two, three, four lessons. It could be that one or two students are away in any given lesson, the entire chemistry of the room changes. You can have the same lesson with the same kids um, at a different time of day, completely different again. All right? Students are very, very susceptible to things like wind or rain, that can affect. (laughs) Behaviour. Like horses. They're like horses. They get (laughs) spooked. It's true. It's really true. All right? I take my own daughter as an example in year seven over there. All right? I saw her cohort running around on a windy day the other day. Beat animals. You know what I mean? It happens. All right? And we need to be ready to, to, and, and I suppose releasing ourselves enough, to realise that classroom management is precisely that's management. It's not perfection. All right? So one day you'll come out with something and you'll go, this is not gonna work, and you surprise yourself, it actually really works. Other times you go, this is gonna be a surefire success, and it doesn't work for whichever reason. That's fine, that's part of the vagaries of being a first year teacher, all right? So communication and listening, these are the two areas I really wanna concentrate on to start with. When we first go into a classroom, one of the first things that we're listening to try and find, ironically, is control. And one of the things, one of the classic mistakes we can make as educational practitioners in our first year is to be too controlling. You want to control everything, right? So you can jump on every single little rule and there's no freedom, there's no oxygen in your room. And you starve it of any creativity, you starve it of any enjoyment. Okay, the other approach is where everything goes. And then there's no control in the classroom, all right? So you need to try and find some kind of happy medium. and Reading that is going to be the, the thing, you know? So you look at that and go, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll I'll set up a a small activity, a short activity, perhaps a discussion-based activity to start off with um, in my chosen field, and let's see what answers come back to me. So I'll give you an example. At the moment, we're studying um, Animal Farm in my Year year 9 English class. Who's read Animal Farm? Anybody here? Right, very good. So the other day, what Liam and I actually planned at my school, we gave them all a, a quiz, and then every single time that the quiz ended, we gave everybody the same mark because that was communism, all right. Anybody who complains got taken out of the room because that's what happens on Animal Farm, all right. So we're teaching them about a concept without giving it a name, and we're seeing which students cottoned on quicker than others, which students were compliant, which students decided to challenge, and then we fed back to them at the end, and they really enjoyed that because it was there was some kind of real-world application for them, some way of them connecting with the text that we were studying, okay. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're an experienced teacher or a first year teacher, you can still deliver that lesson together, all right? You can still deliver that lesson and you can find some kind of positive outcomes straight away. So the first thing you're trying to elicit from any classroom is a positive outcome, all right? And might be a small activity to break the ice like that, all right? Once you've got those kind of positive outcomes, you can start to build a rapport, okay? And trust me, rapport is the key. This is what you're trying to really establish in your first, I'd say, three to six months of teaching is rapport, all right? Because it will save you a lot of time and a lot of effort. And then you start to get parental emails in which are positive, you know? Oh, so-and-so really enjoys your classroom. They feel really valued. And that allows you then to read what you need to do to, to keep that, that happiness level where it needs to be, okay? So communication is 90% of the job. And the other thing to remember, of course, is the animal thing in us. Nonverbal communication is the key. So rather than shack, you're better off just pausing. Like that.
3: <laughs>
2: Would you agree? Alright? You make your same point without having to raise your voice. Because raising your voice at a child is really the last, last resort. Unless they're gonna cause harm to another child. And you have to, you know, obviously interject to that point, it's really not the, the place you need to go. Okay? So the most important thing to understand is communication is the key, and then it's the idea of consistency. So if you looked at the rules, and really three or four days before you go into your classroom, you should be aware of what the, the school procedures are, whether it's at Maridati or whether it's at other schools, as to what the protocol is for certain, certain behaviors. If you are consistent in enforcing that, and it can, you can be very calm in enforcing it, very consistent in enforcing it, most students, certainly teenage boys, will stop running at a brick wall after a while. You know, because it becomes too much effort. You don't need to be putting punitive measures in place. You just enforce the rule. You know, and it may be your personal classroom or all about, For instance, handing homework in on time. You know, drafting is a big thing in my subject area in English. And very often you get students who try to push the envelope. They'll try and email you on a Sunday at 10 o'clock in the evening. And then on Monday they come up to you and go, where's my draft? And you're wondering who's working for whom at this point. Do you know what I mean? So it might be that you put a personal boundary in place for yourself in terms of your practice and go, I'm not looking at emails on a Sunday. You've gotta be kind to yourself and have some kind of boundary in place for yourself because if you have a boundary in place for yourself, your students will respect that boundary and then they can start to enforce their own boundaries for themselves. You need, they learn by example, okay? That's the most effective thing to understand. So that calm, considered, calculated consistency is really, really important in a classroom, okay? And once you've established that and you've established that report, and it does take months, perhaps even your first year, you might argue, I don't know, right? I think that's when the rapport comes in and that's when you can start to not loosen off, but you've got the control of what you need to, to get across in your curriculum. Then you can start to let them give back to you. You can release a little bit. You can plan slightly more open plan lessons because you know for well if you let them go and you, you, you achieve what Louis is suggesting, which is let them show you what they need, you can always bring it back to where you need it to be. you are there to guide, you know what I mean? Rather than instruct, I mean, you know, tell them this is what you believe. You want students to understand that they actually have a voice. They do actually have the freedom to be able to say, well, I think this is probably the case. Or, I think this is actually the viewpoint I'd like to look at. You know, so debating. Debating is a really key thing in my subject area. Never be afraid to start debating your classroom. Let them look at a rule. Let them challenge something. If they can prove it, happy days. That's exactly what you want. You want free thinking in that sense. But they do need to understand too, students, that with free thinking, there needs to be a discipline behind it, a process. All right? And that process is going to be modelled by you and by the boundaries that you put in place to ensure, one, their safety, and two, that their learning is going to be at its optimum. And like I say, go all the way back to the beginning, it comes back to those first three or four days before you even walk into a classroom. You know, what are you looking to achieve? Are you just gonna walk into your classroom on your first day and hope it goes well? Or are you gonna walk in and think, it's going to go well? You know, that preparation, that mental side of the the profession is something we don't probably pay enough attention to, I feel. You know what I mean? And it's something that in terms of your preparation as a professional, if you wanna get across the idea that you are somebody who needs to be listened to, you've gotta earn that from them. And the most important thing is, If they see that you respect them, that respect is gonna come back to you. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking state, education, independent, it doesn't matter, all right? That's the basic principle of life. You give it out and you get it back. Okay, so that's a really, really important thing to understand. And eventually, what that leads to, that rapport leads to trust. That implicit trust between you as a teacher and them as a student. And that's the most valuable area you can possibly be in. Once you have their trust, then they're going to move mountains. And trust me, that's harder than it sounds in week seven or week eight of the term when you're tired and it's raining. I'm sure Tim at the end there is nodding in agreement. All right, but it's true. And it's something that you've got to understand. It's a marathon. School year is a marathon. All right, and it takes time to learn that. And very often we can go out and we go, right, I'm going to literally lesson plan like I did at uni for every single lesson. You'll burn out in three weeks. I guarantee you. All right, you cannot plan to that same level. So you have to look at it, take the scheme of work, look at it and go, that worked quite well, that didn't work quite so well. All right, so I'm gonna tailor that in my next lesson and move this here, you know what I mean? Sometimes you have to change things in real time, that's okay. Sometimes things work, sometimes they don't, that's okay as well, all right? The only failure you might possibly experience there is a failure to adapt. If you don't adapt to your style but you continually fail, then there's an issue with the process there, all right? But that's something that I think everybody in the room here would understand. No one wants to keep running into that barrier. Do you know what I mean? You might have a lesson where a kid throws, throws a desk out, or has a tantrum. I had one a few weeks ago, all right? And the most important thing to understand is at that point in time, you stay calmer. Because every single other person in that room is watching you at that point. All right, and they're looking at your reaction as some form of guide. Okay, and that's a really, really important thing to understand: is that you are, whether you like it or not, in a position of real responsibility. Okay, in that sense, so that calm and that orderly, orderly, I suppose, um, environment will come with trust and with rapport. Okay, and then that's when the gold happens. That's when you can play. And Louis is correct: some of the elements of our system really do need review. Okay, but we work within the constraints we have as well. That's mine corollary to that. And so you look at it and go, what can actually be achieved in the environment I have? The first thing is control of my own practice. The second thing will flow from that. Thank you. Thank you, Scott.
0: Just to echo your sentiment as well, I had a gig at a boarding house. And I opened, I actually lived in the boarding house. And when I opened my door, I opened my door literally onto 20, 14 year old boys (laughs) and living in that small confines and expecting them then to go to dinner on time, to do their homework, to not shove them into their cupboards and lock the door, things of that nature, the ability to build rapport and to have a positive relationship is the core of that dynamic really is so important when it comes to behaviour management, so to speak. Next, we have Dr. Christopher Blundell. Dr. Christopher is a lecturer at the Faculty of Education at QUT. He teaches units in the Faculty's Bachelor and Master's courses on assessment, digital pedagogies and strategic management. His current research interests include professional learning, the challenges of integrating digital technologies in teacher practice and the interaction between digital pedagogies and high-stake assessments. Chris also has 26 years teaching experience in P to 12 schooling, including 11 years at an executive level in school leadership. He's also played a pivotal role in QT international capacity building short courses for international partners. On my prac, I found two very distinct groups when it comes to schools. People that hate classroom technology, (laughs) hate it with such a passion. And people that really try and integrate it in their classrooms and in their lessons. And there seems to be a major battle between these two. Now, real talk, what are the advantages of technology and how do we use them without it being tokenistic? Um,
4: Probably a bit of background for me, just so you understand uh, where I'm coming from. Whenever someone talks about technology, you can probably assume, rightly or wrongly, that they're They're interested in talking about technology and teaching because they like technology. and So they're coming to transmit to you their big ideas and why they think technology should be there. Um, So to be really frank, I like technology, but that's not why I'm interested in it and that's not why I pursue it as far as something that's worth doing. My interest is driven out of something that um, became very clear to me, not at university, but in my first year of teaching. Uh, was the fact that in the end you are teaching for learning. So, your job at its most fundamental level is to help the students in your care learn. Um, and as a teacher, therefore, you have to look for the strategies that work, you have to look for the tools that will work. And in my mind, technologies, digital technologies, are simply tools, they're tools for learning, which means they have a place they also don't have a place in certain things. Okay, So I need to be really clear about that because I don't want you to think that I'm evangelizing um, the role of digital technologies in pedagogy, I'm not. Um, I instead want to talk about where it has its place. Um, and as Liam points out, there, there's a range of opinion about the role digital technology should and shouldn't play with that. Um, and what I'm gonna to suggest to you that on one level, that actually comes down to what teachers think teaching is and what they think learning is, um, which will therefore control where you see technology sitting. I'm going to try and reposition you. If your job is about helping your students to learn, you need to work out which tools work for them. Okay? And I'm going to use the word term very broadly because paper and pen is a tool. Okay? In the Industrial Revolution and in the formalising of schooling, we had sort of slight We then went to paper and pencil and they were just simply technologies that allowed whatever process was going on to occur. They have their time, they have their place, but they also have their limitations. And so my interest in technology is to say, can it help our students learn? Can it help us as teachers do teaching better? Um, But if it can't do those things, you shouldn't do it. And if you've looked at any of the research in this space, the overall summary is technology is kind of helping. And when you look deeply at it, some uses of technology are actually deeply problematic. They're actually creating negative effect. Some uses of technology are incredibly positive to the point you have students who are growing in terms of their learning um, improvement the equivalent of two or three years of academic engagement. Now the question is, why the variation? And here's what I want to suggest to you. I suggest that it comes down to your mindset about what teaching is, and that will control how you use technology. So if you think teaching is the act of transmitting knowledge, then your use of technology will be to help that. Okay? Now, that might be problematic because one of the things that I know many teachers talk about is the fact that technology is distracting, that students disengage because there's so much else going on. Now, my suggestion to you is that if the technology can't compete with those other things, you're not using it right. It should be be unavoidably engaging, irresistibly engaging. And so I'm going to suggest to you tonight that when you make decisions about the role that technology plays, you think very carefully about how does it help deeper engagement and deeper learning? And for you, how does it actually expose evidence of learning better? and if you can think about it from that point of view, it will mean there are times where you'll say, um, no, the students shouldn't use technology. Because see, either adding cognitive load, so it's actually taking away from the ability the students ability to think, this is distracting them, or they have to work hard at using the technology and they're not learning. They're using the technology, they're not learning. Um, so we need to think about that as a point of saying, okay, well, what do we do? How do we do it better? Do that the idea? In the same way that if you actually have technology where you have a deep purpose, so let's say you're interested in the students following their own areas of interest, following their own things that they're passionate about, And technology is a powerful tool in that instance because the student can chase their own line of inquiry. So, with secondary students, they have a, a level of maturity to some extent, but also an academic skill set that they can use to follow their own area of interest with an appropriate level of guiding from you. Um, so, that's a very useful tool. In the same way that um, there are some instances where, without technology, the students either depend on you to know that they are learning uh, or depend on someone else. And I'll use a couple of examples of that. Um, Who's played a sport or been coached by someone? One of the problems with that, for example, is that when you ask someone how you performed, they tell you what they saw, and they tell you how they thought about it, you don't get to see yourself perform. Whereas if you video record yourself performing, you have evidence of how you did. You can use someone else's feedback, but you can also get your own. Does that sort of make sense? And so that's what I'm talking about with technology. Technology should enable something deeper. But if it's simply a substitution, don't do it. There are better things you can do with that. There are certain strategies, certain tools, that work well um, in their current form and your job is to really question that. So, my suggestion to you tonight is a a simple idea. In the end, you're about being purposeful. So what I suggest is that whenever you think about any tool in your practice, your first question you ask yourself is, why am I using it? What's my deep purpose for selecting this tool? Then think about how it will be used and how it will help students think how it will help them to act and engage in the learning, and how it will help them capture evidence of their learning. Now, one of the big contentions that I have, and it's a challenge for teaching, is too much of education is formally dependent on someone else telling a student how they're going. It shouldn't be a situation where kids don't know at the end of a unit of work how they're performing. They've got to wait for the result to work out how well they've done. That shouldn't be the case. And I would argue that if you can pick tools that help students see the evidence of their own learning and you can provide them a way so they can actually gauge how that's progressing, that's a better outcome for them. So the last step then is the outcome. So whenever tool you pick, how will you know it's achieved what you asked it to do? Okay? Because I think the point's really well made here. You need to be flexible. And there are times when something in your head works really, really well and in the classroom it doesn't. Okay, you need to know when to pull out. The lesson is diving, fall out of the dive. Have a deep purpose, but think why, how am I doing it, and what's the outcome?
0: Thank you, Chris. (laughs) Next we have uh, Mr. Daniel Johnston. Daniel is currently in the second year of his career teaching, teaching senior English and History at Brisbane Boys College. He completed a Graduate Diploma of Education with Honours from QUT in 2016 and soon after began writing curriculum for a small branch of the School of Distant Education. Mm-hmm. Prior to working at a metropolitan GPS school, Daniel has had experience working in low socioeconomic public co ed institutions as well as private and online education. Maybe here's the true all around us, Scott. <laughs> 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 You've lost your title. <laughs> Daniel is currently staying afloat amidst the swirling chaos of his first years in education amidst curriculum transitions, adapting to a new career of hundreds of Jeremy high fives. So, DJ, you're early career teacher and I think your place on the panel is really important because it's very good to hear experts in the profession with decades of experience but sometimes that can get lost especially when we're so young especially uh, when we're just entering the profession sometimes it's really valuable just to hear someone in their first second year of teaching so you've elected to talk about your experience thus far in the profession and how to avoid burnout as a young teacher and like Scott was echoing that work-life balance and being able to effectively teach and learn those things but also not to get too jaded and out. because a recent study said we've got upwards of 50% of teachers dropping out in the first five years of their profession um, so of, so it shows me that these students in their first five years, these young teachers, there needs, something needs to be done. So you've got your boots on the ground. What advice could you give us to not burn out and to stay with the profession? Well, like you said,
3: I am new, so unlike the other people on this panel with years of experience and lots of expertise, I'm a little bit more egocentric and I'm going to talk about myself as opposed to the systems that are going on. Um, but like pretty much all of you, I have just left uh, where you are and I am potentially your immediate future. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about is really what it's like to adapt to a new career. And something that I Scott has started talking about and I wanted to bring up first is you have just spent the last two to four years focusing all your energy on accomplishing something and you just have. Um, and it might be for idealistic reasons, you might have very personal aspirations, um, alongside uh, Lou always talking about, um, where you're trying to accomplish, you're trying to change minds, you're trying to influence individuals and give something back to the world. But what you have now is a job. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to adjust to that because you think you're going to come into a classroom, you're going to goodwill hunting, um, you're going to dead <laughs> poet society, you're going to change lives. Yeah. Uh, and then you find yourself in board meetings and answering emails and dodging phone calls from parents. And being yelled at or witnessing other adults yell at each other in a staff room and now you're at the mercy of office politics as well um, and that's something that can be very confronting and I think part of it is when you're a practice student you're looking at this as this ideal profession and it's something that you're trying to accomplish all these great things all this effort you've been putting into crafting the perfect lesson and differentiating and unit planning and coming up with all these resources is no longer sustainable, because now you have two extra lines and a whole lot of other social um, and professional commitments that will get in the way of that. And the first thing that was really important for me was to build a support network. And that is that can be outside of school, that can be within the school, it definitely should take some form within the school, and that's attaching yourself to other staff. So if that's very difficult for you, a good way is to look for feedback or look for advice you find it hard to approach people and that's a very great way to invite people into your circle um, so say like hey I'm thinking about doing this or is this something that you think could work here and that will say that I want you to talk to me I want you to share what you have and most people respond very positively to that and that helped me a lot in my first couple of days in my first couple meetings, in my first couple of years that's where I am now I'm still in that boat I do not have it figured out I am stressed a lot I don't sleep very much at marking and reporting times but I am managing and I still love my job and that's something that's really important and uh, that support network is what's got me there and that's outside and inside and Scott said having personal boundaries I do not work on Friday afternoons Friday afternoons are sacred to me apart from obviously this evening I'm on holiday so the schedule's <laughs> off a little bit but um, what I do on Friday afternoons, I have a couple of close friends that I make sure we get together. If we can, if other life commitments don't get in a way, we get together, we share a coffee, a drink, we talk about school. We get that teacher talk stuff out of the way and then we can focus on our own lives again. All the stuff that we've pent up and afraid of repeating in front of our peers, perhaps, or letting unleashing on those particularly uh, difficult students, perhaps. Um, that was the first step. The second was learning to say no. And especially as a practice, it's probably your Instinct to say yes to everything and people will take advantage of that. The outdoor education manager will come at you and say let's go on camp You can go on all these excursions. We need other supervisors. Would you like to do extra tutoring? Would you like to coach a sport? You will want to say yes because you want to be valuable You will not be valuable if you say yes to everything Be polite Be forthcoming, say, hey, that does actually sound very interesting, but I'm trying to find my feet. And most times they will respect that. If they don't, it's their problem. You need to look after yourself. Your best practice, what will make the school like you, is if you are healthy, you are rested, and you have uh, those boundaries that you set for yourself. Um, Those are my real coping strategies straight away. Uh, There's not too much more In depth that I want to give you broad because it is uh, there's no easy answer there's no this will lead to a balanced and healthy life make sure you do something outside of your job it is important and you it will reflect better back in your own practice if you can focus on yourself from time to time you obviously have to be making that extra effort it is going to be chaotic you probably get sick you will definitely get stressed there will be days where you do not want to go back to school tomorrow, and sometimes it's fine to take a sick day for that as well. People will not judge you if you take a day off here and there just to sleep and do some marking. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Luckily I have my job already. <laughs> <laughs> so it be, careful, right? um, be careful Dan, be
0: careful.
3: Hopefully this doesn't get back to the wrong people. Uh, but there are definitely many... He's eyeing me now. <laughs> um, but there are many ways that you can cope with stress and part of that is building those very firm support networks inside the school, outside the school. Attach yourself to people you respect. Try and uh, take some time for yourself. If that means you have a double spare and instead of planning that extra great lesson, you have something you know will work that isn't potentially perfect, but you go for a walk and you get a coffee, you get some sunlight and recharge those batteries a little bit will probably serve you better in the long run and make you feel like less of a stressed out workhorse, um, which will, Make, which will probably lead to that 52% who leave in that first five years who do feel like they need to be achieving all the time and putting in the same amount of effort they do in prac. You are learning, part of learning and growing should mean that the process becomes easier or at least you're confident enough to not have to uh, invest the same amount of energy for the same amount of results. Obviously look to grow, but at the same time take care of yourself, I think is the first and most important step.
0: Thanks DJ. Some fantastic advice there, and I'm sure you'll be hammered during the Q&A session.
2: Can we hammer
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take out back. No, it's fantastic. So next up, we've got uh, Mr. Tim Kotzer. Tim is currently the head of college at St. Peter's Lutheran, both in and Springfield campuses. St. Peter's currently enrols over 2,500 students and employs in excess of 600 staff, making it Queensland's largest independent school. St. Peter's is Tim's second headship, having served as principal at St. Andrew's Lutheran College on the Gold Coast from 2010 to 2016. Tim's teaching areas are PE, history, Christian studies, and international baccalaureate theories of knowledge subject. Tim is a lifelong learner holding a bachelor's degree in human movement studies from UQ, Mas- master's of education, admin from UNE, master's of business from QUT, graduate diploma in theology, and Australian Lutheran College and a graduate certificate in th- philanthropy from QUT. He's also completed short courses in leadership at Harvard University and Northwestern University. And in July, he was the first overseas person to be credited as a leader in a Canadian independent school through the Canadian Association of Independent Schools. Tim's current educational interests involve the development of school culture, positive education, using data to drive improvement, innovative learning spaces, and the development of thinking skills in students. In his spare time, he enjoys watching the Wallabies and the Broncos as well. Now, Tim, You're quite unique on this panel because you're um, a real leader of one of the largest independent schools in Queensland, the largest independent school in Queensland. Now, you really wanted to talk to us, especially when we're going out to the workforce and we're in this awkward period between finishing our course and next year and do we apply, when do we apply? You really wanted to talk to us about nailing a job and landing a job in an independent school. What advice can you give the young teachers in the audience about getting a job,
5: hypothetically, at a school like yours. So the reason I want to talk about helping you get a job in an independent school is that I believe that the quality of a school, the quality of the learning outcomes, uh, rises and falls on the quality of its teaching staff, and the quality of, of the learning that occurs can never exceed the quality of its teaching staff. So I want the very best teachers to work in my school, and I want the very best graduates to want to apply to work in my school, so that's why that's my motivation for talking to you about this tonight. I'll preface everything by saying that I believe that um, when I appoint someone, there are two things. One it's, one, it's one of the most important things I do. If I get the appointment right, then a lot of my problems with parental complaints and all those sorts of things disappears. So I make sure that I'm involved in the appointment of every. Permanent member of staff and any teaching uh, contract that's, that's more than a term. And in a big place like St Peter's, that's a lot of my time, but it's one, of, like I said, it's probably one of the most important things I do. The second thing is I really believe that it comes down to things like cultural fit. Is this person going to be a good fit for the culture of my school? I can teach them other things about blended learning and behaviour management and all those sorts of things. Sorry, I shouldn't use that word. <laughs> but are they gonna be a good a cultural fit for my school? And so the interview process, the application process, is very much around trying to work out whether this person's gonna be a good cultural fit. My first bit of advice would be be proactive. Don't wait for the job to appear in the paper or on Seek or LinkedIn or wherever it is that we advertise these days. Um, write to the school. Go on the website and write to the school. That's how I got my first teaching job. I had two teaching jobs in August of the year I graduated. So I didn't have to worry about anything else because I bothered to write to Sky's Proactive and I bothered to write to schools. It tells the head of that school, this person is someone that's proactive. But it's also another way into the school because often um, there'll be a short-term contract, for example, that's available, and it's a real pain to have to advertise uh, and go through a recruitment process. If a head knows, hang on, I had a really good application come across my desk a couple of weeks ago, I'll go have a look at that, it saves them a lot of time, a lot of stress. If you do a really good job on that contract, there's every chance you might become permanent. So that's a way in um, at the back door, so to speak. So I encourage you to be proactive in that regard. Be honest and truthful in your application. I've seen some applications come across my desk and I'm looking through the CV and going, wow, this, this person's amazing, I'm thinking they must be in their 40s. And I look at it and they're 21. Mm-hmm. And you sort of think, well, either I've done nothing with my life um, or um, <laughs> yeah, okay. just there's a little bit of, embe- of embellishment going on. So tell the truth because you will get caught out um, You know, and if something looks odd on a CV and you make it to an interview, I guarantee you they will ask a question about it and that's when you're going to get caught out. So. So, you know, stick to what you've done and what you've really done. Your covering letter, your application, maximum of two pages. Right? Any more than that and you're waffling. Right? Heads, senior leaders are busy people. Right? They're not going to read anymore. And that's the honest truth. So two pages, maximum. Make sure that you address it to the principal and use Mr, Mrs, Dr, Ms and their surname. Don't write Dear Sir, Madam, that just tells me you're lazy and you haven't bothered to go to the the website and at least try and find out the head's name. In the application letter, introduce yourself. Tell them what you're applying for and what it is that, you know, you can teach. Briefly, no more than a paragraph, outline your educational philosophy and why it's going to be a good fit for that school. A bit of a hint, once again go to the, the school's website, have a look at um, a few pages and you'll get a sense of what they're about. Right? And even paraphrase one or two uh, key sentences from their website so it resonates with the person that's actually reading the application. Make sure you talk about what you're going to bring to the role you know, your personal qualities, passionate, enthusiastic, open to change, open to new ideas. That's really important. But also, what sort of hard skills are you going to bring? Um, do you have? a level one coaching certificate in cricket? Have you got an AMSA? Uh, Do you have a first aid certificate? What skills have you learnt as a result of that part-time job you've had had when you've been going through university? The ability to work in teams, to problem solve, all those sorts of things are really important things to outline in in an application. Details about your degree and your prac teaching experience. If you've done a prac in an independent school, Mention the school that you did it at. Because once again, I said it's about cultural fit. If if I read that, oh hang on, they've had an experience in an independent school, you know, they might be the sort of person I'm looking for because they know what we're on about. So these are just tiny little things but they can help get you across the line. It's just gonna sound like um, I'm stating the really obvious and I am for a lot of these things. Make sure you proofread your application. Proofread it, put it away, come back to it, proofread it again. Give it to a friend, give it to mum or dad to proofread as well. Little things like spelling, grammar, punctuation, the way you express yourself counts. You'll be surprised, in my 27 years, I've had two applications where, and they were for middle leadership positions, where the sentence says, and one of my my strengths is attention to detail, and there were spelling mistakes in that sentence. And you're thinking, well, maybe not so much. and the other thing to get it right is make sure you've got the right school uh, and the right position. Right? The number of times I've had applications okay, and they've mentioned the wrong school and the wrong position just tells me they're actually applying That's for amazing. other jobs and they just haven't bothered to take That's the amazing. you know the time to do things properly. Like I said, it sounds obvious, that you might be a, you might be an outstanding teacher, but if you get that wrong, you're never going to get to first base. So you've got to get these little things right. Uh, your CV. No more than four pages. Right? Once you get anything more than that, and people are going to stop reading. So the things to include on your CV obviously are your contact details. Talk about um, your education. List your education, your, your 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 current degree. If you're doing really well, put your GPA in as well. Uh, not, you know, whilst it's not the, the be all and end all, it's also it is important. Similarly, If you went to an independent school, I'd actually list that school on my CV. Because once again, I'm looking for a cultural fit, and if I know this person has gone to a school um, that is similar in ethos to my school, there's a chance that they're going to be a better cultural fit, and that's another leg up in this process. Um, List any PD you've done. So if you've been on prac and you've managed to go to the various staff PDs, list that. It shows that you want to learn, that you're keen to learn, that you want to get better at what you do. Uh, List any skills you've got. So once again, you know, if you've played, played the piano, if you've got a gold award in the Duke of Edinburgh, if you, you know, volunteer in the community doing different things, list those sorts of things because independent schools are not just about the four walls of the classroom, it's about the whole child. And so the co-curricular program, the extracurricular program is a really important part. So if you can bring additional skills that are going to enhance the extracurricular, the co-curricular program of that school, that's going to make a difference um, in, the, in your application. And finally, list your referees. And can I encourage you to make sure you contact your referees beforehand and give them a heads up. Some of you will list um, your prac supervisor or supervisors as your referees. If you haven't told them and I ring up and they go, oh, hang on, that was, oh, yeah, I had them six six months ago, oh, I think they're okay, it's not going to stand you in real good stead. Right, give them a heads up. That way they can think about, oh yes, that's right, and they did this, and they're really good at that, and I was really impressed with this, and, I was, you know, and and so on. So it's actually giving you the best possible opportunity for them to talk in the best possible light about you um, and what you might bring to the school. Turn up to the interview early. It sounds like you know a really obvious thing, but you don't want to turn up late and not know where to go and be all flustered, and, 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 and as a result, not give the best possible account of yourself. My first teaching job was in an independent school on the Gold Coast. It was a Tuesday morning for the interview. I drove down on a Sunday afternoon from Brisbane, timed the run, uh, knew where I could park, knew that was the building I had to go to, added 25% to my travel time for that interview, just in case something went wrong, arrived in plenty of time, was um, relaxed and, and, and off I went. So little things like that make a big difference. When um, someone from the school does ring and, and offer you an interview, right, confirm the time, confirm the venue, those sorts of things, but also ask who's going to be on the panel yeah, and what their role is. Right, that way you can use their name when you're talking in the interview uh, and you also know what they, what they, they do. Um, you might be able to Google them and, and find out a little bit about them and you might be able to throw something, you know, if they're really interested in robotics, you might be able to throw something like that into your answer that resonates with them as well. First impressions count. You know They talk about first 17 seconds being the most important. Um, like or not, people are shallow and superficial and they will judge you <laughs> based on what they see. And whilst independent schools might be forward-thinking, progressive when it comes to teaching and learning, generally we're fairly socially conservative. So gentlemen, that means you turn up to an interview in a collar and tie minimum, preferably you know, a suit. Or a suit top, and ladies, whatever the professional equivalent of that is, um, I'm never quite sure what it is. So, um, but but that's really important, right? Look them in the eye, shake their hand firmly, use their name. Three really important things that will get your interview off to a good start, and just put them in the right frame of mind because they'll be impressed with what they see. Would encourage you um, to use, or if the head is in the interview, to call him Mr, Mrs, Doctor uh, unless they invite you to call him by their first name. Now, whilst we're not stuffy and conservative people, deep down we actually do like to be called Mr. Kotzer or or something like that. So, um, little psychological things do make a big difference. Can I encourage you to to use or treat the interview as a conversation about the topic you know the most about? and that's you. It's a conversation about you. Nobody knows you more than you. And the reality is, it is a sales pitch, but you need to be authentic. Right, so let let that authenticity shine through in the interview by talking about the thing you know most about, and that's you. It's okay to pause before you give an answer. Right, just because they've asked a the question doesn't mean you have to answer it straight away. So. Take a few moments to think about how you're gonna answer it. If you're not sure what they're asking, ask them to, sorry, can you ask me that again? And that gives you a bit more time to, um, to process it. If you genuinely have no idea what they've asked, don't try and bluff your way, mm-hmm. right? A number of times people have answered a question, had no idea, and basically that's ruled them out of the rest of the the race for that particular job. You're better off saying, look, I really don't know, but I'm keen to learn more about that, can you tell me something about it? So turn it around in that particular regard. Probably the best advice I can give you in terms of answering questions is to try and use examples. Illustrate your answers with examples, practical examples that you've either um, had from your own prac teaching, or if you're a first or second year teacher, draw on those practical examples as well. Because the best predictor of future performance is past performance. So if you can talk about something and illustrate it with an example, I know that you've actually done it. Or at least are learning from it. Questions in interviews these days tend to be open-ended. So they're phrased around things like, can you tell me about a time when? I wonder if you could talk about this? Or can you discuss? Or could you explain? All right, so they're open-ended and they give you the opportunity to take that question in, in the direction um, that you like to take it and to use the examples that you want to use. Broadly speaking, I think there's about 10 areas that you'll get questions about. So there'll always be a question about why do you want this job and, and, and this school? If your answer is, well, you know, I want to stay in South East Queensland um, to be close to my family, it might be true but that's not going to get you the job. Why is it you want to teach in that particular school? You know, is it that the values of that school aligns with your values? Are they doing something particularly exciting in a field that you're passionate about? Are they doing things in the area of service learning and you want to be part of that? know, is it you've always admired this school because, use those sorts of things in your answers so that they resonate. Second sort of questions will be around what experiences have prepared you for this role? Now that's slightly challenging if you're a graduate teacher because you've had two, three pracs maybe. Um, but think about before you go to the interview what sort of experiences you've had, what classes did you teach, what challenging behaviours did you have to work with in the classroom, what were you know, how did you manage the workload, how did you deal with the, you know the difficult parent? Think about the broader life experiences you've had, whether it's been playing in sporting teams or being a member of a club or a community or in, you know, in, a, in that workplace. Now, what have you learnt from those experiences that you can use to bring to your examples that are gonna add value to that school? If it's a faith-based school, and most independent schools are faith-based, whether that's Anglican, Catholic, Lutheran, Uniting Church, um, Pentecostal Christian, a majority of independent schools are faith-based. So there will be a question around um, the Christian ethos, the Christian faith. The reality is most that today most people come from um, a nominally Christian background or no Christian background at all. So how you answer this question is really important. Uh, my school, St Peter's, is school of the Lutheran Church, um, but I have staff who are on the, you know, anywhere between you know, I don't believe to, um, you know, I'll use the term full-on Christian, it's a terrible expression, Um, but that gives you an idea of the spectrum. What we expect is that all staff members will be supportive of the Christian ethos. So the question I always ask is, St. Peter's is a school of the Lutheran Church. As a Christian school, we expect our staff to be supportive of the Christian ethos. In what ways? Are you, will you be supportive of our Christian ethos? Now, if you come from a faith background, that's relatively easy for you to answer. If you don't come from a faith-based background, it's it's more challenging. And it needs to be an honest answer. And so, you know, often the answer I hear for for this one is, um, look, you know, I don't go to church, um, but I believe in Christian values. And so I'm, you know, supportive of treating people with care, dignity, and respect. You know, I'm a very caring person, and I want to use my gifts and talents to help each other and help help others. And that's how I'd be supportive. So, you need to think about how you're going to answer that particular question. Um, look at the school's website because it will give you a guide to what uh, what they ex- what they are looking for in relation to that faith-based element. You know, some schools will ask you for uh, a reference from a, a minister or a pastor. Um, and that should give you an indication about um, what the level of faith commitment might be in that particular school as well. So make sure you research those sorts of things. Uh, These days, lots of what happens in schools is about working in teams and working collaboratively. So there'll be a question about how you like to work, and in particular, how you like to work with others. Similarly, and one of the other panelists sort of alluded to it, I can guarantee you there'll be a question about how you actually deal uh, with conflict with colleagues, right? Believe it or not, schools are like any other workplace and there are conflicts between teachers. And in some ways I think teachers are worse at dealing with conflict between themselves. You know, we expect kids to be able to deal with conflict in the, in the playground themselves, but teachers are hopeless at sorting it out between each other, right? So you need to think about how, how you're going to answer that question. You might say, look, I'm, you know, I'm a fairly easygoing person and I actually get along with most people, But if I did have a difference of opinion, I'd go and talk to that person. I wouldn't let it fester. I wouldn't talk behind their back. How do you you deal with conflict? Because that's a really important element of of any workplace. Uh, You've heard about stress and all that sort of stuff. So expect a question around stress and work-life balance and deadlines. Um, Because the reality is, teaching is hard emotional labour. And there are peaks and troughs throughout a term those last few weeks of term are stressful. Um, you know, reporting, marking, you know, if I get one more email from another member of staff who's so, so stressed but it's taken them an hour to compose the email um, and if I actually did the hour doing the work, none of this stress would have occurred, but that's another matter. Um, but ha- yeah, you know, do you use checklists? Do you, you know, make sure you start things really early? Do you make sure you go for a walk for an hour every morning? Now, how do you, work, you, know, how do you manage those sorts of things? Because that's an important thing, because you know, we don't want you um, having to go off on stress leave every five minutes and breaking down and not coping and all, <coughs> all those sorts of things. Um, there'll be a question around IT, no doubt about it. Right, saying that you use PowerPoint or that you use the internet to research things is not a great answer. Right. Talk about blended learning, talk about flipped learning. Talk about how you use phones to um, how you, you, you know, students can use phones in your class to um, enhance the learning. Because It should be a tool that enhances learning. So what I like to call them ICLTs, Information Communication Learning Technologies. So expect something around uh, technology. There'd be a question around differentiation. Right. In Australia, we tend to teach the middle. We do a pretty good job of helping our students at the lower end of the spectrum. You know, by scaffolding, by chunking, by uh, changing the task slightly, but we do a terrible job with our top-end kids, with our um, so-called bright kids. If you answer that question by saying, oh, well, I'd get that bright kid to teach the other kids that are struggling, it's a terrible answer. What is it you do in your classroom to extend, to enrich the learning of those bright kids? something to think about um, before you go into an interview. Uh, There will be a behaviour management question. (laughs) If I hear my style is firm but fair, one more time, I'm gonna strangle that person. Um, It is a terrible answer, right? Think about your experiences on prac. How did you deal with that particular challenging child that kept calling out? How did you deal with that child who simply wasn't engaged? What's your approach? Um, Most parents in independent schools, and I would say in every school, are fantastic. But there's one or two percent that are challenging and maybe that percentage is growing a little bit more. Um, You know, Louis talked about parents being under more pressure than ever before and things like that. So maybe that's manifested in the way that some of them behave. So how do you work with that parent? In independent independent schools, we talk about working in partnership with our parents. How are you going to work in partnership? How are you going to explain that to the interview, interview, interview panel? In what ways, what does it look like in your classroom? Um, I can guarantee you as a first-year teacher, they'll ask you, what do you think your biggest challenge might be, and in what areas do you think you you might need support, Just something to think about. I can't answer that question for you, because only you know that answer. Um, And as I said before, co-curricular is an important part of any any independent school, Um, so what skills, what talents, what experiences might you bring uh, in that regard as well. At the end of the interview, I'll generally ask if you've got any questions. Most people go, no. A couple things that you might want to think about is, you know, I'm a beginning teacher, a first year teacher. Um, What support or what programs does the school have in place to help me as a beginning teacher grow and develop? And maybe another question to sort of think about is, you know, if you've done some research about the school, they might have a fantastic... um, that coding program. You might ask them a question about that, or they might be introducing positive um, psychology into the school. Ask them a question about that. Once again, it shows you've done the research, that you're actually interested in that school, um, and it's these little things that make a big difference. Um, finally, at the end of the interview, thank the panel. Ask them, can you get feedback? You know, when it's all done and dusted. So, if, if you do miss out, at least you're getting feedback about what, how you might improve next time. So, folks. That's a lot of um, minutiae in terms of little things. A lot of it sounds like common sense, and it, and it probably is common sense. But over the years, you'd be surprised how much those little things um, are glossed over, um, that people don't pay attention to, or they end up um, costing what I would, you know, people who are probably gonna be very, very good teachers end up missing out because they can't um, do these little things. Um, rightly or wrongly, we still use interviews to employ people. Uh, and that's the reality at this stage. We use other things as well, but it's still a really important tool. So the application and the interview um, makes a big difference and there are little things that, uh, that make a difference. But thank Fantastic.
0: you. Fantastic, thank you. So now
5: we're going to move on
0: to our second half. You've been able to hear these experts speak about their passion areas and hopefully you've been busy taking notes. This section, we're gonna open it up to you. So it's not rude to go on your devices. I've got the link up on the screen there. So if you wanna get your phone out or your laptop or your iPad, whatever you have, that's fine. And I'm already getting some questions through now. So I've got your questions. If you'd like me to ask on your behalf, that's fine. Also, if you'd like to do the old fashioned way and chuck your hand up and ask and network and show your face, uh, that's fine as well. Okay. so. Start thinking about the questions. I'll get the ball rolling and then I'll open it up to you. So think about what questions you'd like to ask. So the first question I like to ask is, it's very interesting to look at in the audience and see mainly women and look at the audience and it's a whole bunch of guys. But it wasn't through lack of trying. I actually had a lot of interest from a lot of strong female um, educators in Brisbane and in Queensland. Unfortunately, there wasn't any time for them to come around. But it's quite an interesting dynamic to have in the room because I know some people in the primary cohort at QUT, there's probably about four male primary teachers in the cohort. In early childhood, I believe there's one. And in secondary, I would say the split would probably be 60% women, 40% men. And I asked my students out on PRAC, some of them hadn't had a male teacher until grade eight. How do you feel that affects a student that hasn't had? Uh, a, a male teacher until grade eight and how do we get more men in the teaching profession especially in early childhood so Louis, i'll i'll throw that open to you first <laughs> <laughs> especially from a principal from a early childhood primary uh, background okay. what do you believe about men in that well firstly, in Maradati currently within my stuff we have a high
1: we have a balance probably a female and mom. Um so I, I do think that's important I have been, because I'm an early childhood background, there's not many of us, I do get that sort of a lot of questions, interviews about males and how do we shift and change that. I'm not so sure really, because as I guess a lot of people have alluded to tonight, I think we need good teachers. And I certainly believe that, that there are a lot of children out there who need strong male role models. But, you know, as far as, if we're looking at a a dropout rate of 52%, you know, in terms of within five years of of any teachers, um, you know, I think we need to change. I mean, I think there's many things we need to change and draw, you know, draw in more people, get more excited about what we do, how we do that, guys. And from where I sit and and how many people I piss off, really, um, I'm probably not a good person to ask the question.
0: (laughs) Does any other
5: panellist members want to jump in on that one? Look I think it reflects the status of teaching and the perception of the community that teaching is a a female uh, profession, wrongly. Um, So part of it is how do we how do we change that and and part of it I think is actually teachers ourselves talking positively about the profession. Mm. You know the number of teachers I hear um, thankfully not very much at St Peter's but elsewhere I've heard you know they said well don't become a teacher well you know you know, and they say it's the best of the brightest. Why would you become a teacher? So we actually do ourselves a disservice in, in terms of the profession. So it's about valuing our profession and talking positively about it. And it begins with us and with you in the room.
1: But you have got to change the profession, don't we yeah. I mean, I, I, if that's what the feedback and it's coming from teachers, that's alarming. So why isn't there shifts and why aren't there changes? And yes, the young blood, I think, to drive those changes is really part of that process. You know, I think what teachers are saying is, you know, I think we should be listening. Yes, there's a lot of whingers. I like some of those comments that you had to say there, but the culture of learning within schools, I think, is just really not sustainable. So I think we've got to change
2: that. I think the old days, <clears throat> teaching was seen as a nurturing role. So the old days, we're talking the 50s and 60s, sort of the idea of that then being a female role. It's not the case now. It simply isn't the case. I mean, we're, we're in a space these days where Thankfully, there's far more gender parity than there was. It's still not perfect, but we're getting towards that aspect that it's not really a male or a female role anymore, but that's not permeating through the media. Does that make sense? So actually, part of the issue is probably a perception issue caused by the media, I would suggest, and the way that teachers are valued in that sense. It's not just us as a profession talking about what we need to change and and with respect to you as, as educators, emerging as the field it's probably also the way the media reports on teaching and then the fact that we're driven by naplan we're driven by stats stats driven data you know
0: I will open it up to the audience now does anyone want to be very brave and, and raise their hand <laughs> and Touched ask some something in person yes
4: hi i'm um, this questions to all the panel I was just wondering, when you're in a classroom and you've got a particularly challenging student,
0: you spend all year with them, you really invest in trying to, you know, maybe manage the problems they present, and they're just not giving anything back, and they're not really coming around, and you're treating with
4: them with respect, you've been calm, all those kinds of key things. How do you deal with that? Like, because you've obviously you've invested, and now you're maybe disappointed. How would you deal with the student in like, the classroom? Can I go one of the one of the absolute joys, but it'll look like a frustration, is that there are times when you will invest deeply in someone and you will not see the fruit of that labour. Um, so there are times when you will work really hard in the student and and not, not on them with them. You know, so you develop the relationship, you you get into their space, you find out who they are, you do everything that you can do to help them grow and it they don't either see it, or you don't see the improvement. And so it's kind of almost like you've, you've planted the seed and you've watered it, but someone else gets to see the plant and the fruit. Um, and and sometimes for various reasons, you just have to be okay with that, okay, because you know, everyone has a different growth path to them. And some people, there's a fight, they don't grow very well, and then a period of time later they do, and they see fruit. Not, I, I had a student many, many years ago who I really enjoyed teaching, um, but she always seemed just a bit resistant to it. And she wrote me a letter probably 10 years later and said, Thank you for investing and persisting when I was actually pushing back, you know, and she's pushing back on me. And that just, at the time, I just got into the, the year, this is year 12 with her. I'm like, I've worked really hard for two years with you. I haven't seen the kind of the movement back that I would want um, or normally see. Ten years later, i get a letter. Um, and then the interesting thing is she, she worked out who she was. but She needed to be out of school. So one of the points that Billy was making is that sometimes the very formal nature of schooling tied in with the whole adolescent growth thing and everything else is that there are a lot of things happening and only when someone moves into sort of an adult post-school phase where they start becoming who they are and they start realising the value that you contributed to that. Now, most of the time, you'll never hear about that. You'll probably never even see it. Um, but sometimes you just know you you put in the work and the fruit will come and someone else will see that fruit but you've done the work and if you value that person you just keep working on them and even if they're pushing you keep working
3: i think the only thing i could add to that as a new teacher who has not had the perspective or the range of that yet i've only just seen my first group of year 11s just about to finish year 12 now Mm -hmm. Um, and i have to say the only thing i could possibly add to that is you've got to have thick skin you got to never take it personally and you've got to not allow that to then shape your relationship with them. Like obviously it might be an indicator you have to try a little bit harder. Maybe it's an indication you need to step back a little bit and they're resisting because they feel a little bit smothered. But all you can do is to be consistent and don't treat them differently to others because of it and try and approach them with that fresh sense every day so if they are particularly difficult for you one afternoon don't come in the next morning holding on that grudge because they
4: will sense it and they, that will only worsen the relationship. The thing I'll add to that too is that sometimes students their strategies they'll push hard back on you and that the plan is that they you'll get tired of it and you'll just let them be. You'll just let them do what they want to do. No, students, if you draw them close and you keep investing in them despite everything else, so they keep shoving at you and you keep pulling them in. Okay, it says when someone values you, they keep committing, they learn something about life when you commit despite them shoving.
0: Next question, we'll continue on. Um, this is a, qu- a really good question, a really brave question. I understand why it was sent through anonymously. Tim, you said in the interview process that you talk about how interviewees manage stress. Uh, when they come in and whether they have avenues for that what should someone do if they have a diagnosed history with mental illness where sometimes no matter what they're going to do they're going to have depression they're going to have anxiety maybe they're medicated for that certain illness if that's something that someone just has to hack um should they be open and honest about that and how should they deal with that if they do get the job
5: so i'd say for- Firstly, society's attitude towards mental illness has changed in the last five or 10 years, and fortunately, we're not, and we're not there yet, but we're moving in the direction that it's just the same as a broken arm or, a, you know, or, or heart surgery, it's, it's, it's another, you know, it's another, it's, it's an illness that can be treated, that can be, uh, to, to be worked with. So, um, I'd actually su- su- suggest that, A, it's not, it's not the stigma it once was, and B, if you're open and honest with the school about these sorts of things, they can then actually work with work, work with you, as opposed to them not understanding what's what you're going through or what or what's happening. Because then, if you don't understand or don't know about it, it's very hard to do, um, to try and support that person. I
2: think the key is transparency. I think with anything in an interview, the key is transparency. And I think that. Um, I mean, let's be honest, it's a very, very sensitive subject. The idea of mental mental conditions is a very sensitive subject. And I can understand why the person who asks the question is asking about the issue of perception. But you've got to understand that the key word there is perception. Very often that can be a self-perception. If you're honest with an interview panel, that's not no longer a judgment of you, it's a judgment of them. Does that make sense? As an institution, as an educational institution, as you've just heard from Tim there, he's aware of the fact that and as many employers are these days they're aware of the fact that you know things have shifted and I think that's a really important thing to understand so the minute you disclose that information it's no longer a test of you
1: I'd just the devil's advocate I, I'd shut my mouth, I'd get the job and then I'd go after I got the job because I, while this this is true and there is a shift to me I don't think when I see what adults can't even cope with with young children they're not going to cope very well with adults in on their stuff and I'm not saying that I don't understand. We're a small school. We know of the staff member's taken out, the pressure it lies financially. You know, the, how do we fill that space? I'd play the game, get in, and then I'd start. To be honest, just saying. Yes. Money talking. To whoever. Yes.
0: Say so you've got something like anxiety or whatever, and you're very good at coping with it, Ooh. and it might be a case of you might panic in school are like once or once a term or something. Would you mention that to who's interviewing you, or just? Not because you know that it's not going to happen that often and you're very good at coping with it. Do you know what I mean?
3: Like would you tell the interviewer that... DJ, jump in on that and just say, I would personally suggest you cross that bridge when you get to it. Um, If you think it's going to be a small issue and it's something you can bounce back from, once you're in there and you're established and you've already proven your worth and they see that you are that worthwhile person that you are, then having those down moments, you will notice the longer in the profession. People have... Terrible moments. Okay. People have loads. You will see tears in the staff room. People have horrible things going on in their real life that spills into their day, and that's unavoidable. And if you've built that network and you've kind of solidified yourself in that culture already, they will support you through it. And it's more about saying, "Look, here is why I'm valuable," and then later on, people will understand that everyone is flawed. That's the ideal, and that's the goal. Um, obviously. I cannot speak for everyone, and I cannot speak for every institution, but 99% of the time, at least try and rely a little bit on human decency um, from those around you. Um, I'm seeing some shaking your head because it doesn't always happen, but at least that's how I would tackle it, um, as a person who does occasionally have issues with
2: my Great. I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Louis on my right here, to be honest with you. He's shaking his head, but I'm not. And the one thing I would say to you is, I would actually, a bit of a Trojan horse thing here, I'd ask the school about its induction programme and its support structures for the first, first year teacher and what the support structures and mechanisms are in place to support you as a professional. Because then you're looking, and it comes back to what I was saying it previously, this is a test of the employer, not a test of you at that point. And then you know, if, you, if it's a question of managing your anxiety at that point, you know what the structure is. Do you go to your line manager? Do you go to your mentor? Do you have somebody who's assigned to you in that first year? Mm. And as Daniel said, there is human decency there, in that staff room. It may not be an official mental relationship, but you're not going to be an island for the whole year. There will be people you can form rapport with.
0: All right, we'll move on. Does anyone have any questions I'd like to ask by raising their hand? Yes.
4: Um, I was just wondering, as the getting teacher, what sort of support in general would we sort of be expecting a school to provide to us? I know it's different for each school and different schools it in different place, but just sort of generalise sort of support should we be expecting
3: or should we be seeking? I would say seeking more than expecting. Don't expect anything. Um, obviously because that could lead to Sorry. some very severe disappointments and disillusionment, um, but that's the real world. Like if you go into a job expecting them to help you through it, I'm sure that's what you would love and obviously look for it. But if you expect it, I feel you will struggle Um, especially you have to understand that these people either just have gone through what you have and they will probably, hopefully remember that and try and be forthcoming with aid. Otherwise, um, you know, if you're not ready for it, maybe you should be thinking about what you could do to cope and try and bring something to the table and seek out those goals for yourself, as opposed to expecting those structures to be there for you, um, which is probably not the greatest situation for it to be, but it might be the
2: reality that you come into. I think that's a, that's a good point about reality, all right? Like, Not every school is going to have an induction program in place, all right? That's just the reality of our profession. Um, what it comes down to also is your proactive nature as a teacher. You know what I mean? How proactive are you going to be? So when I was coming back to what I was saying about going to a classroom three or four days beforehand, thinking about how you're going to approach your year, that is important. That mental preparation side of teaching is Incredibly underrated, but it's very important, right? So for you, it might be, how am I gonna deal with a parent-teacher interview? How am I gonna deal with working mark alone? is a, a massive thing, particularly in my subject, English. Um, how am I gonna mark? You know, am I gonna leave my mark into the weekend? Some people might mark us somewhere early. How am I gonna approach it, you know what I mean? So, and that's, that's, those are professional conversations you can have with not just one person, but a variety of people. Like Daniel said, it's about initiative, all right? So if you haven't got a a recognized support structure, create your own, you know, be proactive. We'll move on to
0: the next question. A question I got through the iPad is, a big talking point uh, throughout my course has been differentiation and supporting kids at the end, at the the top level, in the middle, and at the low. Now I've heard um, lecturers and tutors and teachers talk about this realistically, and then I've also had people where I've looked through their their itinerary, they've actually never had any time in the classroom ever and they fully expect 30 written lesson plans for every single individual child, every lesson, every day. How realistic is differentiation in the classroom and how do we as young teachers get through all the uh, conflict about it and find something that works for us? Chris? How would you deal with that and suggestions that you would give to QUT and other uni students leaving into the workforce?
4: Probably the first thing is actually you're part of a team and those people who have been in school for a while um, will have some understanding of the nature of the students in any given cohort. So leverage that experience, ask them, you know, what, are we, what are the strategies that we use? Um, Some schools have very formalised structures for differentiation, others don't, Um, but I would recommend that um, the strategy moving forward is you can't really differentiate to actually understand the range of abilities in your classes, where the strengths and weaknesses are. So the first priority is actually to understand the kids and what they need from you and then leverage the experience of your colleagues. You don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Um, There are often core things that you're going to teach and there will be known strategies for differentiating around that space. Um, there's certainly an ideal, but pragmatically, which is where I sit, there will be groupings of students where you can have different differentiation strategies with them. And again, you don't need to invent all those things from scratch. Having a good staff room conversation with someone say, how do you extend students with this topic? You'll have colleagues who can tell you very efficient ways to do that. You don't even invent that, you borrow but the word I use is appropriate, which means you grab it and you make it work in your classroom space. Um, highly experienced teachers, which is where you'll end up, have pedagogical tool sets, which means that, you know, this is not working for the student, this is something else I'll trial with them. They've learnt that through experience. You can leverage your college experience, that's
0: what I do as an early career teacher. Move on to our next question, and this one's from the iPad as well. I'll direct this one to Tim. Um, when we're graduating there's a lot of information as i'm sure you can appreciate in terms of how to go about getting into a public school a private school uh, what things we need to sign up what documents we need to produce something that's been floating around a lot when i've been graduating is what type of certificates or degrees or diplomas we need for religious schools some require that we do formal training in their chosen faith others kind of uh, just talk about christian values in the interview process if we wanted to go to a specific religious school what type of background information would you suggest we look at if any
5: so really you need to do your research around this around the school and, and and the school system um so yeah there are a lot of systemic catholic schools so if you went to you know brisbane catholic education office website there'd be requirements around what they expect of their teachers, um, either pr- uh, prior to or uh, on being employed. In Lutheran schools, we're not looking for anything in particular, but we do expect um, all our teachers in the first two years, sorry, first three years, to undergo 10 hours a year, so, um, so a total of 30 hours out of three years of a course we call pathways, and it's really about trying to help people understand um, why it is what we do in Lutheran schools. So, you know, we talk about treating each child with care, dignity, and respect. There's actually a reason why we do it, in that we believe that each, each child, each person, is created in God's image and is a loved child of God, and therefore that influences the way that we do pastoral care, it influences, influences the way we do behaviour management, it influences our, all our relationships in the staff rooms, all those sorts of things. So, different schools, different denominations will have. Different requirements, and you really got to do the, do the research around that. Um, certainly, lots of lots of Catholic schools, um, Lutheran schools, look favourably on if you've got some sort of certificate or diploma in theology that enables you to teach Christian studies or religious studies, um, because they're always looking for teachers to teach those areas in addition to the you know, maths and physics and history and all that sort of stuff. Yeah.
0: A question through the iPad, I'll direct this one to Louis. We're talking about differentiation, your Maradati is very centred on student, student learning rather than just a one-size-fits-all approach. How best do we find students' best abilities and then how do we cater for the higher-end students and differentiate effectively rather than just tokenistically?
2: Gosh, I mean to answer within one minute is
1: almost impossible. So first I'm a Gonski fan who talks about individualised tailored learning, which is what we're on about. Reality is, I don't. We are so far from being able to do that. Mm. One, the expectations on a teachers, and one of the reasons they're leaving in droves, they do not have the time. And children are presenting in such complex ways. Anxiety is a good example. How that looks can often be interpreted as, you know, this child that had, you know, is bad or, or difficult or troublesome. So I think we've got a long way to go to be able to support that. And I think that's one dimension. So we're talking about, you know, how does this child present, if you like. In terms of learning, I mean, I feel very fortunate because yes, I have had a lot of experience and my group I currently work with is 16, which is quite large for Maradati. But at the same time, I'm working with, um, you know, I work in a team, everything is shared. I think we have four or five adults as part of that team. So we're able to, A part of that's relationship, which is, you know, how do you get to know Um, Interests, fascinations are really, we we think a lot of people, a lot of education systems are more interested in what children can't do. We start with what they can do. So what they're interested in, what they're fascinated, Mm -hmm. get to know them, connection again, you know, what drives them. You know, at the same time, you know, we talk about connection. I think that's the key in terms of getting under their skin, Mm -hmm. which is trying to work out how they tick. The other thing, we have open conversations about what I'm good at and what I suck at. Children at the moment are under so much pressure. Parents are unrealistic. Children have, you know, a, a something that fires them up. I think that's the starting point. And also get them to understand that it's really okay not to be so good at everything. This, I think that's just bullshit, quite frankly. I think that that's a starting point. The cool part is if you get them fired up about what they do like and what they are interested in, what we find is they'll come and say, hey, listen, I'm not really good at this, but gee, I like it because if I can do that, that means I can do that. So you've got them then starting to use that, I think, that beginning point and drive and motivate them to do things that are more challenging, more difficult, than they find.
0: Mm-hmm. Question is uh, from the iPad that came through is, um, someone in the audience that's not in their fourth year, that's maybe in their second or third, that's at least a distance away from graduating and actually going through the job seeking process. What things could you suggest to someone that's quite far away from graduation, but still would like to be on the front foot and get involved with
5: schools earlier. So, um, I talked about independent schools having extensive co-curricular programs. You know, the opportunity to coach, uh, instruct the debating team, be part of um, the the service-learning program,
0: you know,
5: is a great opportunity. Schools need person power to start those sort of things. It gives you really good experiences to try out um, you know, different things you're learning at university around um, how you give instructions, how you give feedback, how you structure um, classes, all that sort of stuff. You're learning those practical skills, and lots of independent schools also pay money for people to do that. So you can actually, you know, uh, yeah, so that I would, they're, they're the sorts of things I look for on a CV. Has this person actually been proactive? In trying to um, involve themselves in other things in the community that are actually going to enhance the, the value that they're going to bring to the school. So yeah. if they've had you know, three or four years coaching a sporting team, or you know, and done a level one coaching certificate, or they've been you know, part of a community service group where they go out and make a difference in the community, they, you know, they, they're really important things.